This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to Snark Mucky episode number two. And they said it wouldn't last. Um, here we go with a guy who I have long admired ever since I discovered that he was... Well, the name that I was seeing on a bunch of TV shows that I loved also happened to be the guy that was one of my favorite radio disc jockeys from the 70s into the 80s. Um, Ken Levine, not Levine, by the way, is best known these days for his media blog, where he posts a lot about what's going on in TV today or movies, um, a lot about his reminiscences of working on some of the most iconic TV shows of all time, and a few that were nowhere near iconic or lasted very long. Um, he takes people on a journey through his kind of career and his experience. Plus, the guy's had such an interesting path to where he is today and to have gone through so many different, distinctly different forms of entertainment from radio disc jockey to TV writer and TV director. Um, award-winning, by the way, and work on, like I say, some of the most iconic TV shows, at least two of them, MASH and Cheers, one of the two of the most revered half-hours ever. And then to just complete, completely take a left turn and decide he wanted to go into baseball announcing and, and start from scratch, essentially. Teach himself how to do it. Um, it's pretty inspiring stuff, but he's also wickedly funny, very open and honest, uh, I, I think you'll find him fascinating and also really funny. Um, and he's doing stuff today besides the blog. He's continuing to direct. He's also got a play that's uh, now happening at the Falcon Theater in Toluca Lake. If you happen to be anywhere near that area, it's called A or B. Uh, and it's supposed to be very funny and very cool. And uh, if you're in the area, anywhere in Southern California, check it out at the Falcon Theater. And uh, enjoy... Mr. Ken Levine, who brings the snark, but not so much the monkey. That's okay. You know, I would love to, but I just don't know, uh, you know, how to set it up or the equipment. Yeah, I'm getting the education on it. So I see you got a little studio. Well, I have this and I have Sherman Oaks and I actually have a portable setup. I mean, because you can, you know, a couple of good mics and and the right little piece of equipment. You can drag it around with you. It's not that much to to do anymore. I mean, I just if I had somebody who could just set something up at my house and explain to me how you upload it and how you right. do it, I could probably do it. But Get yourself a producer or something. Yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> You're big time. I know, I know. Thanks for talking with me. Uh, my pleasure. Happy uh, to do it. I, I You have always been, um, I, I don't want to say a hero of mine, but I have aspired to follow your path and have failed uh, undeniably in that path. But because when I found out after years of listening to a cassette air check of Beaver Cleaver on KFM, BFM San Diego, B100, <laughs> uh, which I think it was some kind of a reunion weekend or something, I, I listened to this air check over and over again. I never knew that Beaver Cleaver, I, until late 80s, that Beaver Cleaver was the Ken Levine that was the writer on all these TV shows that I had been watching. Yeah. I um, Well, I took the name Beaver Cleaver originally because... At the time, there were all of these sort of generic-sounding names, and I wanted a name that was distinctive. And the minute I went on the air, people would recognize it. And, and the fact that it was somewhat dirty. 
<laughs> which is the other reason yeah, why, one, I, why I took the name. One of the first breaks I remember you saying was, uh, here's a you know beaver shot between your speakers or something like yeah, that. And yeah. So you were always doing the double entendres. Yeah, exactly. I mean, my first night on any radio station would be the grand opening of the beaver. And, uh, you know, I had the whole teen population in one night. Wow. So what? When when did the radio career start? Well, let's actually go back. You were born here in Southern California. Yeah, right? I was born here in L.A. And so you're actually one the of valley. those. Yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, my mother was born in L.A. We used to say that she was here when Zorro was around. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I grew up in the valley in uh, the '60s. In fact, I even wrote a book about it, which I am going to plug now. Called you can plug everything. "The Me Generation by Me: Growing Up in the '60s," available on Amazon. And, yeah, I was here for the whole California myth and then the Sunset Strip and the whole music revolution oh, and Laurel Canyon and that sort of thing. And I used to work at a record store, Wallach's Music City, and uh, routinely I would throw Neil Young out of the listening booths. <laughs> he would just wander in? No, and... he would wander in, and we had one rule, and that's that you couldn't smoke marijuana in the listening booths because the <laughs> listening booths were these glass cubicles, and right. they also served as the uh, store window. So people were walking by, you know, and there was this guy from Buffalo Springfield token, and like, really, every couple of weeks. What was you know, he listening to? Do you remember? Or did he just, just smoke in there and not care? Uh, Vicky Carr. <laughs> really? Yeah, Neil Sadaka. Well, Barbara Bobby Streisand. V. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I bet. So what? So growing up in the Valley, uh, my, my wife grew up in the Valley, and she tells me a little bit about what it was like when she was a little kid there. She always says that Ventura Boulevard was like a two-lane road. I mean, it's like there's nothing out there, and it just just exploded. Were you living in, like, open fields out there? You were know, you, there is... were a lot of open fields. Uh, we moved to Woodland Hills in 1961, and at the time, there was no actual supermarket that there was on Ventura Boulevard Lipton's Market, like a family-owned little market. Uh-huh. And uh, in 1964, they put up the Topanga Plaza, which was huge. And I remember riding my bike, and there were nothing but fields between my house and the Topanga Plaza. Now, industrial parks and condominiums and... Home after home after home. TGI Fridays and (laughs) Radio Shacks and things like that. Yeah, it uh, has completely exploded. But back when I was living there, it really was kind of bucolic and fun. Now, were you, other than working in the record store, were you connected to entertainment business at all? What did your parents do? Well, I was sort of. My mother was a housewife, but uh, my dad was a salesman, a radio salesman at KABC, which was a talk station. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, not a lot of hits were played at KABC. (laughs) But so I sort of had a radio background growing up, and as a kid I would from time to time go to radio stations, and it was all very exciting to me, and I... I wanted to be somehow in entertainment. So you, so you thought about radio as the first entree yeah, into Yeah, radio was really kind of my first love, yeah. Wow. And then when I discovered Top 40 Radio, KFWB, back in the uh, early 60s, and then KHJ, Boss Radio, in 1965, I thought, uh, yeah, of course, you know, look, as you're a, you're a kid, you know, I thought, wow, if I could just be on KHJ and play My Boy Lollipop. I'd be happy for the next 60 years. (laughs) And that didn't satisfy you for that long? No, after 55 years, I got tired of it. (laughs) Well, you can only hear My my Boy Lollipop so many times. Yeah, once. Yeah. Uh, Well, after college, I went to UCLA, and then I bounced around as a disc jockey, And basically, I kind of got tired of being fired because I didn't have the classic disc jockey voice, and I was also a wise-ass on the air. I was kind of Howard Stern before it was fashionable. And uh, And did that translate to off the air, too? Were you a smart-ass with your bosses and stuff as well? Not so much with my bosses, although I would be getting critiques saying, you know, 
shut up. You're not funny. Just play the records. <laughs> I would get that all the time. Um, but I sort of figured, you know, there had to be more to life than this. And I remember I was doing all nights at KMEN in San Bernardino. It was 1973. And on an off night, I went to see the new Woody Allen movie, Sleeper. Mm-hmm. And it was like a bolt of lightning hit me as I'm watching and very much enjoying this movie. I'm thinking, wait a minute, this guy is doing movies. People are laughing. He's able to do sight gags. I'm sitting here in the middle of the night trying to entertain nine people, (laughs) and five of them are probably 7-Eleven night managers who are tied up in the back. I'm making $650 a month. What is wrong with this picture? And that's really where I first thought about trying to pursue writing. Because I always was a funny guy. And I figured there's probably a way of marketing that. And then I, I was working in a station in San Diego. And I was on a five-hour shift, and it was one of those top 40 stations where it was really a top eight station. Right. They just played the same eight songs over and over again. And the song that did it for me, the Chinese water torture test for me, <laughs> was Kung Fu Fighting. Oh, my. Because I play Kung Fu Fighting five times a night. And after a while, I just said, uh, check, I, I, I got to get out of here. I can't keep doing this. So I, I cracked him. got out of radio and uh, met my writing partner. We were both in the same Army Reserve unit, and uh, we decided to try writing television shows. It was this is the David early Isaacs. 70s. It's David Isaacs. Early 70s, which was truly a golden year for sitcoms. Yeah, what was going on around that time? That was the era when All in the Family and Mary Mm -hmm. Tyler Moore and Odd Couple and uh, MASH, um, Rhoda, Phyllis, Maude, Jefferson's. It was a new era. It, it, It... it became more realistic to a certain extent, right? I mean, yeah, is that kind of what more the transition realistic, was? Um, more sophisticated, more urban comedy in the uh, 60s was primarily silly Gilligan's Isle and um, Green Acres and Beverly Hills. But is Hill that Billies the stuff you liked? Like that. I mean, what did you grow up watching, though? What no, was- the stuff I loved as a kid was the Dick Van Dyke show, mm-hmm. which was very similar. And ahead uh, of its time. For ahead that of its kind of time, style. and it was very character-driven. And I was, at the time, less excited by television comedies and more excited by stage plays, by Neil Simon, by Kaufman and Hart. To me, uh, those were, were really the, the funny shows that I kind of gravitated towards. Well, those are guys who have a, a way with language, a way with words, had yeah. great jokes in the midst of of real situations in right. many cases. Um, where were you seeing stage shows? Did they have the theater here in L.A.? Yeah, they, you know, yes, we did have theater here in L.A. <laughs> did, did that okay? happen? Yeah, you know, we would <laughs> ride our horses. There was hitching posts. Up no, to the Amundsen Theater. It, it is a common misconception that there is no theater in L.A., uh-huh. still to this day. But, yes. um, but I mean, I would see sort of roadshow versions of right. this, you know, the odd couple with TV news anchors, <laughs> but, but still. And there was also a thing called Theater in the Round here in L.A. in the late 60s, where um, shows would bicycle around from the Valley Music Theater in Woodland Hills to Melodyland Theater in Anaheim to the Carousel Theater in West Covina. And so, and I was like an usher at the Valley Music Theater. So every two weeks, a new play or a new show would come in. So I got a chance to... uh, to see all of these shows. so All so, starring Betsy Palmer. <laughs> so you were inspired by some of these great writers right. and um, Woody Allen, Dick Van Dyke show. So when you and David sit down to write your first script, are you looking at TV as, as the first opportunity? Well, actually, neither of us had really written anything before. Right. So um, at the time... We wanted to be Woody Allen. We wanted to be Mel Brooks. We wanted to write movies. 
But since we didn't know how to do it, we figured it's got to be easier to master a 40-page television script than a 120-page screenplay, so let's concentrate on TV. And as I said, TV was entering a very golden age at that time, so it was not really a come-down to be writing for sitcoms. If anything, uh, comedies were much better on television in the 70s than they were in tel in uh, features. Right, right. So um, the Mary Tyler Moore Show was our favorite, and that's really how we learned to write what we would do. Fortunately, neither one of us had a social life, so the Mary Tyler Moore Show <laughs> was on at 9 o'clock on Saturday nights on CBS. You weren't out. We were there. We were in front of the TV, <laughs> and we had a cassette recorder, with a silver dollar microphone, and we would hold the microphone up to the speaker, and we would record the audio of the program. Oh, wow. Then we would sit down and listen to it, and then make an outline, write out a five, six-page outline based on the episode. And we would do that week after week after week, now, and eventually we would see the patterns, yeah. and we figured out basically their their game plan and then we sat down and wrote a Mary Tyler Moore show. You came at it very scientifically. Now this is uh, they probably weren't classes or you know books out necessarily. I'll be honest with you, when I went to UCLA there was a sitcom writing class. There was. I didn't take it. I was involved, believe it or not, in the campus radio station, <laughs> but one of the other disc jockeys had his heart set on being a sitcom writer. He took the class, he wrote a spec episode of That Girl, and got an A+. And I read the script, and I thought, Jesus, this is a piece of shit. This is <laughs> terrible. If this is what they're teaching, I want no part of it. Now you flash forward, and I become a sitcom writer, and he becomes an accountant <laughs> at Paramount, where I worked. So I had to bump into him awkwardly every week for 20 years right uh but so no i had not taken a um taken a class but that's really the way i kind of learned things when i was really into radio and radio programming i would listen to khj and just study khj mm -hmm. and uh years later i became friends with the program director ron jacobs and in one of our first meetings I started asking him a lot of detailed questions about why they moved this feature here, why they did that, and that sort of thing. And he said, who do you know? How did you find out about all that stuff? And I said, from listening, just as a yeah. listener, yeah. I, I paid attention. So that's how we learned how to be sitcom writers. So... When did you first get some traction or attention from, you wrote the Mary Tyler Moore. Got did, rejected. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, did you feel like it was good? Or do, do you look back at it now and think we, we had that? No, it, it showed promise. Mm -hmm. But what was very interesting is that our episode of the Mary Tyler Moore Show, we learned a great lesson. Our episode of the Mary Tyler Moore Show was that Murray, who worked in the newsroom with Mary was unhappy and decided to leave. And in our episode, he leaves, he uh, is unhappy working at the Crosstown station, he comes to Mary and says, I made a big mistake, but I may have burned a bridge with Lou, would you help me get my job back? So Mary was sort of in the middle of it, and Mary had to go to Lou Grant and get Murray's job back. It felt very much like a typical Mary Tyler Moore show. That sounds like a good episode. It does sound like a good episode. Well, sounds like such a good episode <laughs> that they did a version of it that year. And the only difference is they gave Murray a job working for Sue Ann. Mm. So you had a chance to see Murray and Sue Ann and how she treated him like a lap dog. <laughs> and it was a very funny scene. And what we had was 
Murray coming to Mary and just telling us off stage mm-hmm. about what his life was like at the other station. And we learned the lesson like, yeah, it's important. See it. If you can possibly see it, that's better. So we learned a, a good lesson from that. But the story editors of the Jeffersons read our Mary Tyler Moore show, and they really liked it and invited us to pitch stories for the Jeffersons. And they bought one of our stories. That was our first sale. That's your first credit. Was the Jeffersons. Yeah, yeah who better than a couple of Jews to write a black show <laughs> set in New York, the Jeffersons. But it's interesting that you got your first job and your first credit on a major network television show after one spec, and you did Well, actually, no, it was two specs. Okay. Um, well, our very first spec was a pilot that we wrote that would have cost... $200 million in 1973 to make. It was ridiculous. We had no idea what we were doing. Then we wrote the Mary Tyler Moore show. That got rejected. We wrote Rhoda. That got rejected. We were uh, about to write uh, a Happy Days. What we decided to do was carve out two years and say, we are just going to write spec after spec after spec and figure that within two years' time, somebody is going to appreciate and recognize that we have talent. Um, And we were very lucky that it came relatively early. Within that two-year plan? Yeah, yeah. Six months within that plan. That's actually something I've been wanting to talk about on this podcast, though, is especially with anybody who works in any form of media or entertainment, that, um, you know, there's this combination of there's a little bit of luck, and there's there's almost always like a champion in there somewhere who kind of believes in you and gives you a chance. But there's usually this element of really hard work that leads up to those things happening. And the fact that you even said it might take two years, which I don't know that a lot of people have that kind of patience to do anything these days. But to say, we'll give ourselves two years and then just crank them out and crank them out and crank them out, there is this effort you have to make to get better and realize how much you suck when you first start <laughs> That's and true. have that self-recognition in order to just get better and better and better. That's very true. And I know a lot of people who write one script and shop it around for a few years. And I've always maintained that if you write a second script, it's going to be better than your first and your third script is going to be better than your second, etc., etc. So my advice that I always give to young writers is just keep writing. You finish one script, begin another script. You never know. And I'll give you an example of that. My daughter, Annie, is now a sitcom writer. And she and her partner started out and were cranking out spec scripts. They wrote a community. They wrote a modern family Um, And the marketplace today uh, requests that young writers have pilots, have original material. Yeah, that's a change. So they cranked out a couple of pilots. And the word from everybody is, you have to be edgy. We need new voices. (laughs) We need people that have a different worldview. And it's like, how is everybody supposed to be edgy? And if you are edgy, so what if you're writing two and a half men? So they're writing all of these (laughs) specs with varying degrees of success. And then they decide, God love them, you know, we should probably write a multi-camera show, which is one of those shows filmed in front of a live audience, just so that we have one. And they decided to write an episode of Mike and Molly. I'm not a big fan of Mike and Molly. Yeah, no. I couldn't offer them much help. The only thing I told them about writing a Mike and Molly is just load it up with jokes. When you finish the draft, go back and put in 20 more jokes. And when you're done with that, then start putting jokes in. I mean, just <laughs> fill that sucker jokes. with jokes. Right. So they did. And it was very funny. It's the most traditional script you can possibly imagine. That script got them attention all over town. Wow. All over town. Not the edgy voice. Not the edgy voice. Not the new thing. You know what? It turns out, hey, 
here's what's edgy, someone who can actually write a joke, <laughs> someone who can actually write a script that's funny, and they've been working ever since. Wow. All right. So let's go back to let's. We're never going to get through any of the rest of your career if we don't move on here. But we get. Let's get to the mash years because obviously you guys established yourself. Um, you're starting to get work. You have a few other credits in there. Right. How long were you on staff at Mash? We were on staff two years. We were head writers for a year and a half, and we wrote for the show for two other years. All right. So. A four-year association with MASH. Now, who else is in the mix? Is is this a traditional writer's room? People go in, you're breaking story, you're pitching jokes. You know, you're... at the time, it was a much smaller room. Um, we had an executive producer, Burt Metcalf, who wasn't a writer per se. It was me and David and maybe one or two other people. Really? Yeah, it was, it was extremely small. That... One year, the seventh season, David and I pretty much wrote the entire year. We wrote nine scripts ourselves. We rewrote everyone else pretty heavily, except for Alan Alda when he had his scripts. And even then, we we tweaked his scripts. Uh, his scripts a little sound like Elmer, but tweaked Tweaks. the script. Tweaked the script. Uh, <laughs> uh, but um, <laughs> yeah, it was a very small staff at that. that was sort of the way television shows were run those so that, days. That was pretty standard. It was a smaller. Yeah, it wasn't like a lot we, of because now it's a lot of guys. Now you yeah. need to come in early to to find a seat. <laughs> but like when uh, my partner and I produced Cheers the first year, the staff of Cheers was me, David Isaacs, Glenn, and Les Charles. That was it, just the four of us. And we would have consultants come in one night a week to help punch up scripts on the stage. But in terms of the staff, truly was just the four of us. Wow. Yeah. Now, you've talked, you've talked so many times about Cheers and MASH, and worth talking about because they're two of the most revered shows in television. I, I remember, actually, when Cheers... Uh, came on the air. I was at film school at USC, and my screenwriting teacher and I had just watched the pilot separately, and uh, we were supposed to be talking about screenplays, and he made a reference to Cheers, and I said, oh, I saw that pilot episode. That's really good, is it? And we talked for like 45 minutes about that pilot. And there was just something about the tone that was set and the look of it and the way those characters, and I know in many ways it was traditional, but there was something that felt totally fresh about that show. And what was it, <laughs> Ken? What happened? With- I think uh, having me and David on staff. <laughs> Is that I, it? I can't think of anything else. You made it that much special. Well, it Because was, it was in front of a live audience, It correct? was in front of a live audience. It, it didn't it was, look like a typical well, four-camera show. Well, it was show. a beautiful set. Right. The set was designed by Richard Silbert who had won Academy Awards for art direction. And it was modeled after, of course, the Bull and Finch Bar in Boston. But uh, it was, I really think, the first romantic comedy sitcom. The Sam and Diane element, having that whole, it was really sort of a Hepburn, Tracy, Pat and Mike type of thing. at the core of the show, I think, is really what separated it. And look, uh, the planets lined up. If Ted Danson isn't available right. or Shelley Long isn't available, then it might have been 13 weeks and out. It was the the perfect storm of that perfect combination. Yeah. I mean, you did, it, it had a fresh look to it. You're right. That set was kind of amazing. It did feel like a place that you knew or that you wanted to be. I and mean, that was the whole It was very inviting. Yeah. We had the best writers in television in Glenn and Les Charles, the best director in television in James Burroughs. We had a great cast. We had a great premise. We were also on a network that NBC at the time was dead last, but it was very fortuitous for us that the president of NBC had been the president of MTM, Grant Tinker, who had worked with the Charles Brothers and was a big fan of that type of comedy. 
And despite the fact that our ratings were absolutely terrible, he still believed in the show and still saved it and kept it on the air. Other networks might have yanked it after six, seven weeks, saying, yeah, well, it's a noble experiment. It just didn't work. Goodbye. Yeah. We have Green Acres. (laughs) The new Green Acres. The new Green Acres. Um, So you've had this massive success with MASH and Cheers, nominations, uh, multiple years uh, of of a longstanding show, which leads to, as it still does to this day, you have a hit, then you've got an opportunity to kind of create your own thing. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk a little bit, frankly, about things that didn't work or or disappointments. Almost, uh, almost perfect. Well, almost was, perfect. <clears throat> that was your chance to kind of create something that that you and David came up with on your own, correct? Well, uh, yeah, along with Robin Schiff. Right. Uh, almost perfect lasted for a year and a half. Almost perfect went thirty four episodes, and I think still was was really a good show. The problem with Almost Perfect, quite honestly, is that it was developed for a previous regime. Ah. And when the new regime came in, it was just inherited. So there was no real, I guess, attachment from the current regime to Almost Perfect. It was just one of those shows we have on our schedule. Um, but yeah, we've we've had a couple of uh, disappointments. In the mid-'80s, we created a series for Mary Tyler Moore that lasted only 13 episodes. Uh, creative differences. Yeah. yeah, let's just say creative differences. What, so what? how did you deal when, because you had had such success, what was, did you find yourself having a like coping mechanism, or, or what, did you, what did you take from it every time you kind of hit one of those things where it's like, well, we did everything we could, we thought we were doing the best job we could, it just didn't work. Can you move on? Does it bother you? Does it stay with you? Do you look back at that stuff? Well... Yeah, it it certainly stings and and leaves some scars, but I I sort of believe that you make your own momentum and you have to keep moving forward. And there's a great line, Barry Diller, who is a huge media mogul, former president of Paramount and ABC, and he has a great expression. He says, whenever some project of his is canceled or is rejected, or blows up, and it happens to all of us, he says one word, next. <laughs> and that's really what, what you have to do. Right. Because, like I said, we all have pilots that don't get made, don't get sold, get canceled, movies that are supposed to go, and then there's a regime change, or an actor falls out, and what was a greenlit movie suddenly flies away. It happens to to all of us. So um, you just kind of have to weather the storm. At the end of the, the Mary Tyler Moore situation, for me, I thought, you know what? Uh, a long-standing dream I had from the time I was eight years old was to be a baseball announcer. First time I heard Vin Scully. Yeah. And I'm now in my mid-30s, and I thought to myself, if I don't pursue it now, I never will. So I now, went to the upper deck change. of Dodger Stadium. This is a this is a midstream change in life where you go... I've, yes and no. Well, it, it is, but I was continuing to write. We yeah. went back and wrote for Cheers, that, that sort of thing. So right. it's not like... I quit my day job and moved to New Zealand to raise sheep. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. Um, but, but yeah, it, is, it was it's a, a big totally change. different path. Yes, though. a totally different path to have an Emmy winning television writer producer sitting in the upper deck with all of the drunks just learning how to do baseball play by play. So this was, again, you basically taking the thing that you had this real interest in doing, believing that you had a talent for, and going going actually up to the game and being your own internal announcer yep. and just calling the game up yep. there by yourself. Yep. Like, like exactly. you're, a, like you're an insane deck, person. I was in the, oh, I was even more than that because it was the upper deck, which was unreserved general mission seats. Because I figure if somebody pays $25 for a seat 
at a ball game. He doesn't want some idiot sitting next to him <laughs> calling the game. But in the general admission section, you just get up and move and sit somewhere else. Right. And I got a I wanted the broadcast to sound really good. I wanted to be able to send them out and get a job. So I would take up two seats. I had my tape recorder, I had a mixer, I had a headset microphone, and I had a crowd mic that I draped over the railing so that I had a nice mix. The crowd, it sounded like a million bucks. I mean, the only thing that didn't sound great was me, (laughs) but uh, I, I would do that night after night after night and tried to get a job as a minor league baseball announcer. I never thought I would get a job in the majors, but I wanted the experience. It was less about if I don't become the voice of the Dodgers, then I'm a failure, and more about what's it like to spend a bucolic summer getting up in the morning and your only responsibility was to go to a baseball park and announce a baseball game on the radio. (laughs) So that's what I did. And I said to my wife, uh, you pick out, I gave her the list of all of the minor league cities. There's like 115. And I said, you pick out only the places that you wouldn't mind spending a summer. And those are the only places that I will send my tape. And she selected 20. I thought, oh, gee, I thought she's going to select 65. <laughs> but okay. So I sent out 20 tapes and was very lucky. I got three offers out of the 20. Vero Beach, Florida. Right. Uh, Bend, Oregon. Oh, nice. The Northwest yeah. League. And Syracuse, New York. And Syracuse was a AAA franchise. They were the Toronto Blue Jays AAA franchise. And I took that. And I did a year of Syracuse and then moved over and did two years of Tidewater, which was the Mets AAA affiliate. And that was in Virginia Beach. So that was a much easier sell. I could say San Diego with humidity. That was much easier. (laughs) And then there was an opening for the Baltimore Orioles. And I sent in my tape. And they called and wanted to fly me to Baltimore for an interview. And John Miller, who would be my partner, was very impressed with the tape. And I got the job. I beat out like 94 people to become the voice of the Baltimore Orioles in 1991. And I was blown away. Yeah. And this is after how many years of doing minor leagues? Three. Yeah. That's that's incredible. And were you still... But that's still still 450 minor league games. You <laughs> it know? was you didn't get a lot of practice. Yeah, and people say, "Oh, well, you got the job because you're a TV writer." And I'm saying, "You know, I spent 3 years all night bus rides and games it was 32 degrees in Syracuse and there's nine people in the stands. You think I did that to sharpen my comedic skills?" <laughs> <laughs> you know, you put in 450 games and prior to that, I probably did another 100 to 150 practice games. So by the time I got into the major leagues, I had done 600 baseball games. Wow. So, yeah. So you had it down at yeah. that point. And plus, yeah. you've always been passionate about baseball. Oh, right? absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. it was. So were you balancing writing during this yes, time, the I whole was. time, mm-hmm. and, and still getting scripts done and mm-hmm. back and forth with, with right. your partner? At and uh, even when I was in the majors with uh, the Mariners and the Orioles and the Padres, uh, their teams always sucked. So the beginning of October, <laughs> I'm back in L.A. I didn't have to worry about World Series or playoffs or any of that kind of stuff. <laughs> you were done I early. Was just with these dog teams, 99 <laughs> losses and 95 losses. Uh, you learn how to be entertaining and you learn how to fill time when you're with those teams. You know, it's the old story. Anybody could sound great calling a first-place team. But how do you sound calling a last place <laughs> a team? A really lousy yeah. one. <laughs> when you're calling a first place team, if you're calling the Baltimore Orioles this year when they're leading the division by seven games 
It's great. Crowds are coming out. Uh, the broadcasters are always delivering good news. There's a key hit. And there's another strikeout. And there's a walk-off home run. You sound like a million dollars. But when you're calling the... <laughs> 1991 Baltimore <laughs> Orioles that lost 95 games, most in horrific fashion. Right. Uh, it was it was a little different. Our starting pitching staff was terrible, and I was doing like the middle innings, and I'd come on, and we'd be down six to nothing every wow. night. Wow. <laughs> every night. So you've got no, nothing good to talk about. Yeah. You've got no crowd noise because there's probably nobody in, in the ballpark. Yeah, they're dead. When I did the Mariners... We were even worse, and we're playing in the Kingdome, which is like oh, a it's, nuclear reactor. It's huge. Just, it's huge, and it's terrible and you know, <laughs> ugly. And outside, Seattle is gorgeous in the summer. Like, why anyone would want to leave that beautiful weather to go into the Kingdome and, <laughs> and watch a bad team yeah, play? Yeah, to watch a bad team. And then when we'd go out on the road... Like, no one cared about the Mariners. You know, we would joke we would be in Kansas City and we would walk by a concession stand that has baseball caps and concessions and memorabilia and everything. And there was, like, never any Mariner caps because no one was buying any Mariner (laughs) stuff. And we always used to joke, it's like, wow, everywhere we go, it's sold out. It's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) So you had... uh... The writing going on, you pursued the baseball thing, which happened for you. I know right. that you you also then got into directing television, which was kind of a whole different. People may think that that's kind of a a natural progression for a writer, but not in television necessarily, because you become more of a hired gun. Then you're really working with somebody else's material most of the time. Absolutely, and it's a different set of skills entirely. Well, and the thing about being a director for a multi camera show is the technical aspect of it, learning that is very difficult because you You're have a traffic four cop in that cameras, center, yeah. and as the action is going on on stage, all these cameras are moving around. It has to be perfectly choreographed. So when there's five people in a scene and you have four cameras and each one talks at different time and you want to get reactions from people who aren't talking, and you also want to have master shots that have the whole group, how do you do that while there's 200 people in the audience watching? It's like putting together a Rubik's Cube, and it takes uh, a lot of time and, and a lot of skill to learn how to do that. Yeah. It's yeah. a very different thing. And, yeah. and plus, you're working, trying to work on performances, have a little mm-hmm. impact on the creativity of, of right. the actual episode while right. you're handling all those technical logistics. That's, mm-hmm. that's insane. Yeah. So I, I think, I mean, the interesting thing about you, Ken, is that you, before, it's so common now in this day and age to need to be a bunch of different things in order to have something go through. You, you, you really aren't just one thing anymore. Right. You can't survive in entertainment being an actor. You have to create your own stuff or write your own stuff. I mean, you, it, it's just not what you do. You were ahead of the curve there in that you just kind of followed your passions. You kind of followed a progression to what you seem to be interested in next. Um, and I don't know many people of that era who were doing that sort of thing. Well, I did it because... I love to learn new things, and I love to experience new things. And reinventing yourself, in a way, keeps you young. Yeah. You know, it's uh, learn how to direct and learn how to be a baseball announcer and learn how to write plays or uh, novels, things like that. Um, Like I said, it just kind of keeps me young. And you became somewhat of a media guru with your blog. I mean, I know you're still writing, and we're going to get to your play in a minute because things kind of came full circle for that that love of theater to what you've got coming up in, in October here in Southern California. But um, because of our massive audience is going to be worldwide That's listening right. to this. So That's right. I have to get specific here. Get your tickets from Norway. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Do it now. Do it now. Make plans. Fly out here. Um, 
the how did the blog come about? Because that uh, that has been around a while. It's gotten a lot of attention in some high profile places. You've had some high profile spats. Uh, that yeah, <laughs> Roseanne and I. You had and Roseanne going head to head. What happened was, I when I would go on some kind of vacation or some kind of trip. I would come back and I would write a humorous travelogue and I would send it out to people in my address list. And after I compiled a bunch of these, I thought, you know, maybe there's a book in this. And I got it to an editor who said, this is really funny stuff and I would buy this book tomorrow if you were Dave Barry. (laughs) But no one knows who you are. So you have to do something to increase your visibility. My first thought was, all right, we'll get a PR person. Then you come to find they want $20,000. And it's like, eh, I'm not going to spend $20,000 see if somebody can you know, get a, an article about me. <laughs> to annoy in, people in about Art me. magazine, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> publicist, we don't mean it uh, that way. And somebody said... Well, you could start your own blog. You can do it for free. Free sounded good. <laughs> so I, I started the blog, and I talked to other bloggers. I investigated, well, who else has similar blogs, and how do you get in touch with them, and asking them how you build an audience, that sort of thing. And one thing that a few of them said is post new material every day because if you post like two three times a week somebody comes to your blog and they've read it already and then they go away and chances are they may not come back so i thought all right at least to start i'll have a new post every day and that's nine years ago yeah (laughs) and i've just kind of uh stayed with that and it's really fun. I, I look at the blog as sort of stretching exercises for a writer. It gives me a chance to write. And, and they're generally short. They're generally like one-page um, essays. And I figure, look, no one is going to want to read nine pages of somebody's you know, blog-term-paper. Um, so have it like one page. Have it humorous. It's nice that I don't have to get approval from anybody. Right. There's no notes. When I'm happy with it, up it goes. Um, All you have to deal with is the aftermath, the comments section. Yeah, yeah, the trolls and that sort of thing. <laughs> and people but, arguing points with you. Which is fine. It's just fine. It opens up discussion. But uh, a couple of years ago, Time Magazine named it like one of the top 25 blogs of the blogosphere, which blew me away because it's not like I entered it. It's not like I even knew there was a contest. No, they just found it. They just found it. Yeah. And, and I do now have a pretty large uh, readership. Well, and, and a lot of it, too, I think I'm fascinated by it because it really does, you, like you say, in, a, in a, usually a very concise way, you talk about you know, your own experiences plus your take on it as it relates to now. It's obvious you're still a fan of TV. Mm-hmm. You still watch a lot of TV. I do. And, you know, typically somebody who has had the kind of career you've had can, you know, disparage what's going on right now. It's nice to relate what has been successful in the past and how you relate it to what's going on now. And in many ways, you're giving how-to advice to young up-and-comers, and and you really crystallize a lot of those thoughts. Plus, some of the stories are just great. (laughs) (laughs) Some of the old war stories. (laughs) But no, I do believe in paying it forward, and I've been very lucky. I was able to break in at the time... I had some incredible mentors, guys like Larry Gelbart and James L. Brooks and the Charles Brothers and Jerry Belson, people like that, uh, very fortunate. And so if I can offer some suggestions and help and encourage other young writers, I'm, I'm happy to do it. It's my pleasure. Yeah. It's, uh, remind people where it is so they can go um, check it out. It's kenlevine.blogspot.com. Yeah. Or 
you could just go to Google and type in Ken Levine blog and it'll take you to it. And then you bookmark it and read it every single day. <laughs> go it's, back through the archives. It's pretty great. Nine years. Binge. When are you going to write uh, that uh, great piece on working with me on the Dharma and Greg episode? From uh, well, you played uh, a cop in a I Dharma. I believe I was and cop Greg. number two, if I'm not, or number three, perhaps. I, sure. I think that well, they've retired your number. They've retired your <laughs> cop number, whatever it was. They put it up on but, the wall. There. Yeah, yeah, that was a Dharma and Greg episode mm-hmm. that that I directed, and you were in actually one of the toughest scenes to camera block that I ever had because there were a lot of people in it. Yeah, it was and a it police was a station. small set. Yeah, yeah. It was a small set. So if one person just leans a little bit, it blocks four other people. So that was a, a difficult thing. And, and you, you did it. You, you got it. Uh, my favorite thing about that is that I really wasn't supposed to be there. I had been talking about it on the radio. I'd be saying, somebody give me a part in a TV show. And the wife of one of the producers was listening to the, my radio station at the time, Star, okay. and was the in. And they got me in. So I was just going to be a background cop. But then when you discovered I was there, and, I'm, and we had never met, right. but you knew me but from I the But I knew you from the radio, too. you're a radio I fan. I was a fan of you on the radio. So the, Whatever the, happened to you? The, <laughs> I turned a star and I'm, you're gone. I'm wondering that myself. Yeah. Um, what you did, this is how sweet you were, but it was an awkward situation. You actually <laughs> gave me a more high-profile role and put me in a different spot, but one of the day players, I think, got kind of shoved through the background, and uh, and they were like, oh, but I was going to be on camera, and I ended up in like two scenes in that thing. There no dialogue, go. but I was I was amazing. Okay, are you still getting recognized? From that episode? From that episode? It comes up once in a while. All yeah. right. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, especially since I found the uh, YouTube clip and I post it like every oh, six months. Oh, cool. Oh, it's on YouTube. Great. All right. Quick questions and I'll let you go. Ken right. Levine. Um, favorite MASH episode all time? That I wrote? Yes. Or, oh, that I wrote is, uh, along with David, Point of View, which was the episode that was seen through the eyes of the patient. Yes. Amazing. Thank Ooh, you. I just got chills thinking about that. Uh, favorite Cheers episode you ever wrote? You know, it's not one that won us any awards, but I really love it, and it's it's called To All the Girls We've Loved Before, and it was Frasier's Bachelor Party. <laughs> and it really came out well, and what I love most about that show is we went to the Charles Brothers, and we said, you know, usually you outline a show. You work out the story beats, and you really have A, B, C, D all in line because you only have so much time. You can't just go wandering off. But we said, you know, it would be fun to just do a show with no outline, just have a lot of bar talk and just see where it goes Mm -hmm. and see if we can come around and ultimately have a story. I said, you know, our story will be that it's Frazier's bachelor party, but he has second doubts. And by the end of the bachelor party, he will have decided, yeah, he does want to go through with the marriage. That's the entire story. Hmm. And the rest of it is the guys talking about things, you know, just talking about uh, losing their virginity or whatever. And um, so they said, yeah, okay, that sounds fun. We trust you. And we really had a good time writing that episode. That's so that's great. my favorite uh, Cheers episode. We've won an award for other ones, but that's my <laughs> favorite one. I know um, you didn't write a lot of Frasier episodes, but there was... You wrote seven. Yeah. yeah. Um, there was one, uh, it, was, uh, it was a Frasier Lilith episode. It was kind of a high-profile one, I guess maybe because... They... We wrote several Lilith episodes. Yeah. We also wrote the one where... Sam Malone comes back. Right. My favorite was a Lilith episode. It's called Room Service. Yes. And that's the one where uh, where Lilith, spoiler alert, Lilith <laughs> sleeps with Niles. Right. In the hotel room. I remember that one specifically for the food in the bathroom yes. jokes. Thank you. That Hilarious. Thank you. I still remember those to this day. Thank I you. loved that episode, and I made a point of seeing who wrote it. And when I saw your names, I was like, well... 
There you yeah. go. Now that that's our favorite uh, Frasier episode. Love that. Thank you. Um, and um, let's talk. You're still working creatively. You're still doing a lot of things. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you got going on now, as well as the play, because. This goes back to you said you were inspired by Kaufman and and Neil Simon and these guys and here you are. You, have you written other plays before? Uh, yes, I've written one other play that has had some staged readings with uh, Ed Asner, Ryan O'Neill, Kurtwood Smith, um, Joanna Gleason, uh, Wendy Malick, a lot of really cool people, Jason Alexander. I also co-wrote a musical that got produced at Goodspeed Theater in Connecticut in 2006 that was directed by Richard Malpe, who won a Tony for Ain't Misbehavin'. But my new play, which is called A or B, uh, is a two-character romantic comedy, and it is going to be performed this fall at the Falcon Theater in Burbank. Uh, the Falcon Theater is owned by Gary Marshall. It's right. beautiful, 130-seat theater, full equity production. Gorgeous And place. that will be from October 15th to November 16th. That's exciting. And I'm very excited about that, yeah. Anything else we need to know about Ken Levine? Well, let's see. Um, my daughter, Annie, is on staff of a show called Instant Mom, which is starring Tia Mowry, and it's on Nick at Night. And she writes with a partner, Jonathan Emerson, and I'm going to direct their next episode next well, week. That's cool. Yeah, isn't that cool? That's great. Yeah, I get to throw my daughter off the stage. <laughs> Were you excited or wary? Oh, I was very excited. No, no, but when your daughter started wanting to write comedy and write for TV, were you, or did you? You know what? I was, it's a good question. I was wary. Until I saw some of the stuff that she wrote. And when I realized that she had the goods, then I was completely supportive. I mean, I would not have told her, don't do it, if the stuff wasn't great, because I didn't want to dash her dreams. I would have just said, it's going to be very difficult that there's a lot of people out there. But once... I read her material, and I saw that she definitely um, has a flair for this. Mm -hmm. Then I was all for it. And people say, well, it's really hard breaking into comedy writing. And I I say, what profession is easy (laughs) to get into today? Well, that leads me to maybe the final question, because you do give a lot of advice on your blog, and I think a lot of people turn to that just to get that inside information about what you've gone through. And as we talked about some of the successes and some of the stumbles and the hard work it's taken and the breaks and the luck and the people who have been your champions, is there a way to distill it down to one really single piece of advice to give somebody who aspires to anything creatively that makes sense to you to give as that one piece? Again, I would say you make your own momentum. If you want to be a writer, just keep writing. And if you want to be an actor, I would say write something that you can star in. Mm -hmm. See, the great thing about writing is no one has to hire you to do it. Okay, I can write scripts day and night. If I'm an actor, somebody has to hire me for me to get on stage and do my thing. But you can write a one-person show. You can write a play that that you can star in. Um, you can write sketches. You can, um, you know, produce YouTube videos that you star in. Um, you really have to be proactive these days. So that would be my advice. Yeah, excellent. Uh, now to bring it truly full full circle for this episode. Um, could I get Beaver Cleaver to sign off with a big break here at the end? <laughs> oh, well, what am I supposed to say? Now, just wrap things up. This is uh, Snark Monkey, and uh, your, your guest is. <laughs> All right, Kendall. you've been listening to the Larry Morgan podcast, and I have been your guest, Beaver Cleaver. Stay tuned for better guests coming up next. <laughs> Aw, how's that? That's great. Get a monkey. Get a monkey!
This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.